Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, welcome to the new edition from a snowy D.C. metro area. We had our first major snowstorm of the year here. I live in Northern Virginia, and people down here freak out whenever it snows. If I swear, it's ridiculous. I'm from Jersey. Everybody knows that. We get snow. We know how to handle snow in the Northeast. The Mid-Atlantic, forget it. It's it's like people loot the supermarkets if there's a forecast of like half an inch of snow. It's ridiculous. So we got about eight inches of snow where I am, which is a legit storm. But, um, you know, people just, you got to stay off the roads. Thank God it was on a weekend where most people, you know, could stay home. They weren't trying to go to work. But it was bad, you know, iced over and it was cold. But it's beautiful as long as you don't have anywhere to go. But anytime I think of snow, I think of one of my favorite comedians. He's from Jersey. He's an Italian guy named Vic DiBetetto. Anyone who has not seen his bit on snow preparation called Bread and Milk, you got to go. Please Google it. YouTube it. Vic D. Bitetto, D-I-B-I-T-T-E-T-O. It is one of the most hysterical um, skits about how people react to snowstorm preparation. Got to get the bread and milk. Hilarious. He's got a lot of funny, funny YouTube videos. He he goes on these rants about everyday things and he's hysterical. So anyway, um, Bread and milk. If, if you don't remember his name, just Google bread and milk on YouTube. It's it's worth the two minutes. It's funny. So anyway, so that's what's going on here. It's kind of cold and snowy, but um, we survived. The government is partially shut down anyway. So people are not not as many people were going to work. But uh, the federal government doesn't take much for them to either shut it down or have delayed openings because of snow in the D.C. area. So and kids get to get off of school pretty easy here. So there's that if you live in this area. But God, people don't know how to handle snow down here. Anyone who lives in the D.C. area that's from an area that gets snow often knows exactly what I mean. So anyway, there's that. Um, coming up on this episode, uh, given everything that's been going on, I felt it was important to have a national security expert on. So Juliet Kayem will be joining me. She is a former assistant secretary over at Homeland Security under the Obama administration. She's also a Harvard law professor. She's been doing this stuff for a long time. She used to work also in the DOJ in the civil rights division. So she's really smart and she's great. You've probably seen her on CNN. She was uh, someone that I felt would be a good resource to have a conversation about what's been going on and some of the big breaking news over the weekend concerning Donald Trump and Russia and the FBI opening up in a counterintelligence investigation into the president of the United States. Let that sink in. So we'll be talking about that. It's a great interview. She's coming up in a little bit. Um, but before I get to that, a couple things I wanted to chat about. Um, so many of you know that I come from a law enforcement family. So I have a very different perspective on law enforcement issues um, and police shootings and things like that. Um, I've been very vocal about this on CNN. I, I try to bring a balanced viewpoint about police officers and some of the more controversial shootings with with um, 
black men and just kind of trying to get people to look at it from a non-racial perspective and more from a law enforcement um, deadly force protocol perspective, you know, to try to bring some balance to the discussion. I've caught a lot of shit from people on the left about this, um, but I frankly, I don't care. I'm going to be honest about that. I want to bring facts to situations. And I sometimes we need to remove emotion from things, even though these are emotional areas. And I get that. Um, But if we're going to try to make things better or fix problems or problem solve, you have to be able to look at it from a balanced perspective. So um, I have gotten into arguments with people over the blue lives matter versus black lives matter versus all lives matter stuff. And um, I proudly use the hashtag Blue Lives Matter because I support our law enforcement community. My husband is a federal law enforcement officer. My grandfather was captain of the police department in my hometown for 40 years. I come from a very strong and proud and honorable line of law enforcement. So I'm not going to apologize for Blue Lives Matter um, because I think the, the, are there bad apples? Yes, Are there problems and injustices in some police departments and race relations? Yes. But the overall police officers who get up every day to protect and serve do so honorably and honestly. And I feel it's important we need to continue to highlight that. They sacrifice every single day. They put their lives on the line. There's no such thing as a routine traffic stop. There's no such thing as a routine arrest at any point, these things can go south. And I bring, why am I bringing this up now? Well, because I don't know, it's kind of been lost in all of the Trump chaos and the shutdown and the new year, but there have been six police officers killed already in 2019 in the first two weeks. That's a lot. And it caught my attention because these police officers are all every, you know, different races, different genders. You know, when that that thin blue lined blue line knows no race or gender and that brotherhood is something that unless you're in the community, you really can't understand it. But it caught my attention and I felt it was I wanted to just talk a little bit and remind people of these everyday heroes who gave their lives in the line of duty, doing what people would consider normal routine police work. I'm going to read each one of their names and how they were killed. Um, They're not in chronological order. I guess they could be. Um, Officer Joseph Shiners from Provo, Utah. He was shot during the uh, an arrest attempt of a fugitive. And this was a fugitive who made threats against law enforcement officers in the past. He gave his life making that arrest. You had Officer Dale Woods from Collarin Township, Ohio. He was struck and killed during his response to a traffic accident. This happens often, by the way. I believe traffic stops are the number one killer. Traffic stops and car crashes are the number one killers of police officers, by the way. There's no such thing as a routine traffic stop. There is a officer, uh, Chateri Payne, from Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, She was gunned down in uniform outside of her home walking to her car on her way to report for her shift. She died in her uniform on her, in, on her property. That's being investigated. (sighs) 
we had Officer Natalie Corona. She was only 22 years old. Her father was a police officer. She wanted to be a police officer. She just finished her training, 22 years old. She was ambushed by some suicidal gunman on a bicycle that came up and shot her, ambushed her while she was responding to a car crash. They did catch this bastard. He, well, no, he killed himself. But they found out who it was. And I mean, they're still investigating like why, but <laughs> 22 years old. All she wanted to do was be a cop. And something about um, Officer Natalie Corona's story that's annoyed me and why I, I talked a little bit about the Blue Lives Matter issue. Um, apparently, oh, she's from Davis, California. And apparently there were students at UC Davis that are protesting Facebook photographs. She did a photo shoot where she was um, wearing a blue dress and holding up um, the Blue Lives Matter flag, which is basically like an American flag with a blue stripe in it. They were protesting that, seeing that somehow that's racially inflammatory. You know what? Shut up. No, it's not. Okay? No, it's not. She was doing, she did that photo shoot to, photo shoot to honor her fellow law enforcement officers and those who had, been, had fallen in the line of duty, ironically. Who knew that that would be her fate as well? So, you know what? Cut it out with the protests over the Blue Lives Matter flags or, you know, officers um, honoring one another or those of us who choose to, to honor our, law, our police officers. I, I don't want to fucking hear it, to be honest. I'm sorry. Because who you people are the first ones to call the police when you're in trouble. So, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very passionate about this just because, obviously, um, it's personal for me. And I... I'm being honest about how I feel about it. Uh, then there's Illinois trooper Christopher Lambert. He was also struck and killed responding to a car crash. And then most recently, um, I believe this was uh, about a day ago, an officer, uh, I can't pronounce his first name, but Sergeant Carter from Birmingham, Alabama. He was um, shot and killed responding to a car theft uh, ring. They saw some some sus- suspects that were trying to open car doors. Him and another officer responded. They apprehended the suspect who had a weapon on him, and that suspect was able to take that weapon and discharge it and kill one officer and wounded another. So, um, and Sergeant Carter was black, by the way. So was the officer, the female officer from Shreveport, Louisiana that was shot in her uniform on her way to work. So this happens, okay? And the idea that when um, officers are dealing with suspects who have weapons or how they respond and the and people who are critical about people who get shot, if they don't, you know, officers aren't mind readers. They don't know what you're going to do with that weapon. And it's them or the officer. And that officer wants to go home. He didn't decide to be a criminal that day. And most officers don't wake up, almost 99.9% don't wake up every day saying, I'm going to go and shoot someone today. That's a very serious and traumatic experience for most police officers. Again, are there bad apples? Yes, and they should be prosecuted. But I want to focus on the good ones and those situations like what happened with Sergeant Carter just to think about that next time you're quick to judge the motives behind a police officer when they shoot someone. So 
didn't mean to start on such a sober note, but I wanted to make sure that I paid proper respects to these law enforcement officers. And for people who are supportive of our law enforcement, we have something called the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. And the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial is here in Washington, D.C. And every year I try, uh, when I was in D.C., I would try to go to the vigil that they have where they honor the fallen officers. And they have a wall there similar to like the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall where they put the names of the fallen um, uh, officers. And it's a very emotional, uh, very um, somber, but beautiful ceremony honoring these families and and these officers and that happens during police week every year, and that's in May. But the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund um, helps do this, and you can donate to it. It's tax deductible. And there, if you want more information on that, it's the uh, it's uh, nleomf.org. That's their website. That's nleomf.org. So if you want to take a look at that, they are an excellent resource, and they do a great job honoring our fallen cops. Moving on from that, um, I know people are going to, and comments, you know, I, I, I want to hear from you guys about, about that. Um, so reach out to me on the Honestly Speaking Twitter feed. That's at Honestly underscore Tara. I want to I hear from, from listeners about how your feelings on, on that, because I know it's controversial and it's emotional for a lot of folks and different people have different experiences. Um. Steve King, speaking of experiences, so Representative Steve King, he's a Republican from Iowa who I actually worked closely with when I worked on Capitol Hill and um, considered a friend. When I was in Iowa during 2011, I think it was, they had the straw poll out there. Shout out to Iowa. I have friends out there. I love the state of Iowa. Everyone's so nice. Um, I went to the Iowa State Fair, which is awesome, by the way. Um, Anyway. So I, it was Steve King who took me around and who I hung out with at the straw poll. And I mean, I, I, he was always tough on immigration, but I never felt as though it was, it came from a place of racism or white supremacy. I really didn't. And you know who kind of those people are. You know, there were some others that I came across that I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you're a little questionable. But Steve King was so nice. Like I, I never felt that way. I just thought he was a border hawk. Well, I don't know what's happened to Mr. King over the years, but since Trump's come around, he has really, I mean, he's said a couple controversial things, but now, you know, I, I, but not, not like now, not like now. I mean, he's really taken it too far. He's supported white supremacists. He's talked about, he doesn't understand why white supremacy is now a a dirty term. Like what? I mean, he's just the comments he's made are just flat out racist. I can't defend them anymore. I'm terribly disappointed in him. And I think he should be censured by the house. I mean, Republican leadership needs to do something about him. He won his reelection. He was primary. Uh, was he primary? No, he wasn't primary, but he had a democratic opponent, but his district loves him in Iowa. Um, it looks like already there's a Republican primary challenger to him. Steve King's got to go. Jeb Bush came out and spoke out against him, basically saying the same thing. And um, yeah, I'm just disappointed in that. And I'm not the only one. I have a couple of other black Republican friends who've spoken out about similar experiences of, of having positive ones with Steve King. And then to see this 
to see these comments coming from him over and over and over again, who he's been supporting, his discussions about Western civilization. It's it screams racism and white supremacy. I'm sorry. Sorry, Representative King. I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I am officially <laughs> done with you. Uh, the president of the United States, of course, was asked about this. And Trump said, oh, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea what he said. Yeah, right. Bullshit. Trump seems to get convenient amnesia whenever he's uh, questioned about issues of racial insens- insensitivity. I don't know. Never heard of him. David Duke, who's that? You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. So he doesn't know anything about Steve King. This has been in the news for a couple of days now. He doesn't know anything about that because you know that Trump watches CNN and Fox and MSM. He watches cable news incessantly. Don't believe what he says that he doesn't read the papers or watch cable news. Yeah, he does. It's called executive time. Remember that story that came out? He spends hours a day watching the news. He's obsessed with his image. So don't tell me he doesn't know about it. He just doesn't want to talk about it because he's said some really awful things too. And I think he's a racist and a bigot. So he tries to act like, oh, I don't know what Steve King said, but he knows all about Jeff Bezos and his $137 billion divorce. Jeff Bezos, the you know Amazon creator and CEO. He also owns the Washington Post. Recently, it came out that he's getting divorced. And there was some salacious story about him in the National Enquirer where they followed him around for four months and tried to talk about this woman he was having an affair with and all this and that. Yes, the same National Enquirer that's run by David Pecker, who is Donald Trump's buddy, who also was cooperating with the investigations um, because of his role in the catch and kill stories with Stormy Daniels and um, uh, what's her name? Karen McDougal, the Playboy Playmate and all of that, the payoffs and all of that. Yeah, that same guy coincidence that they went after jeff bezos who trump can't stand who's he's like upset weirdly obsessed with jeff bezos my theory is because he's a successful businessman unlike trump he's actually a benevolent person and does like positive things with his money unlike trump and he's a legit billionaire 137 times over unlike donald trump so that's what that's about but he knows all about Jeff Bezos. He's been tweeting about it, by the way. But he doesn't know shit about Steve King and his racist remarks. Yeah, okay. Nobody believes you. <laughs> <sighs> the shutdown continues. And uh, this the, over the weekend, it was the first time that federal employees who are affected by this, which is about 800,000 of them, did not receive a paycheck. They got paychecks zeroed out. Now, we're not just talking about paper pushers in the Department of Interior somewhere. We're talking about the entire Department of Homeland Security. And we're going to talk about this in my conversation with Juliet Kayyem coming up and, and, and who this affects and what that does. Um, but and how that affects actually our national security. But, yeah, the Department of Homeland Security is not funded. Federal law enforcement officers are not being paid but they are being forced to go to work, my husband being one of them. But it's beyond that. We're talking the Coast Guard, TSA agents, air traffic controllers, Coast Guard retirees not getting their checks because the Coast Guard, even though they're a military branch, they are funded under Homeland Security. Don't ask me why, it's a whole thing, but they are. They're not funded under the Pentagon. So, yeah, the Coast Guard. These are also the same people who interdict, do drug interdiction. They're badass, by the way. 
the Coast Guard. I will admit that I used to think the Coast Guard were just glorified lifeguards until I went to the Coast Guard training facility in Virginia, one of them. And I spent the day at their training facility and it changed my whole perspective, made me want to join the freaking Coast Guard. I had no idea the scope of what they do from hazardous material cleanup and response like like oil spills to their their involvement in drug interdiction. These guys are no joke. So they are patrolling our waters down in, you know, all over the coasts. And they're the ones that are that are seizing tons of drugs, the same drugs that Trump claims are coming through our southern border that they're not not like on the backs of illegal immigrants, not in the quantities that matter. They come through legal ports of entry or this or the Coast Guard is seizing them on the waters. So these guys aren't getting paid. So I don't want to hear it from Donald Trump when he talks about there's a crisis on the border. Bullshit. So so you are going to punish the people who are doing the job every day? No, it's a fucking political campaign ploy that he that he a promise that he made that he knew damn well he couldn't keep. And it's now now 800,000 federal workers and and the residual effects, the ancillary effects of that, the small businesses, the federal contractors, they're all being held hostage because of Trump's campaign fantasy here. And he has to keep his his base engaged. Let me tell you what else. He's losing some support on his base. Poll, recent polling is showing that uneducated, well, let me say, non-college-educated whites, the support for Trump has dropped somewhat in the last month or so. Between the shutdown, the tariffs, things like that. And as the shutdown continues, Trump's numbers aren't great. He keeps trying to blame Democrats for this. But... The American people are blaming Trump and Republicans for it. Recent CNN poll, 32% only blame Democrats. A Washington Post ABC poll, only 29% are blaming Democrats for this. Yeah, well, it's Trump te- Trump's temper tantrum. He had two years with, with Republicans controlling both houses of Congress. If this was such a crisis, why didn't you do it then? Well, maybe because there were some Republicans who didn't think it was a crisis. Now, are there problems? Yes. I worked on this issue for seven years when I worked in Capitol Hill. I know a little bit about border security and illegal immigration. The system is broken. There are things we need to do to fix them. Building a wall is not necessarily the panacea that Trump is claiming it is. It's not that simple. I'm going to read a quote about this. The fence doesn't solve the problem. Is it necessary to have one? Sure. Would it help? Sure. But to just say, build a darn fence and have that be the end of an immigration discussion is absurd and almost childish for someone running for president to take that simplistic of a view. And by the way, the bottom line is the fence doesn't stop anybody who really wants to get across. Any guesses on who said that? That was in 2015. I'll give you a second. It's the president's current acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. That's who said that. This guy is not only, he has been one of Trump's go-to guys. He's had multiple jobs in this administration. He was a member of Congress back then for South Carolina. 
He gave up his his congressional seat to run the Office of Management and Budget for the president. Then he also took over the job of the Consumer Protection Agency because Trump got rid of that person. That's an I don't even know if they've even filled that now because he had to give that up because he couldn't have three jobs because now he's acting chief of staff because nobody wants that damn job either for Trump. Can you blame them? That's what Mick Mulvaney said. It's not going to stop anybody who wants to get here. And that's not the only, it's simplistic and childish to think that that's the only solution. And he's right. It's also been reported that Trump dressed him down during these negotiations that um, I think Axios was the first to report this, that Trump like screamed on him during a shut down negotiation meeting in front of Democrats as well, where he said, you just fucked it all up, Mick. Yes, that's the quote. You just fucked it all up. What did he do that was so wrong? He was trying to come to a compromise number. Trump wants $5.7 billion for the stupid fence wall, whatever the hell he's calling it now. And Democrats are saying we'll give you $1.6. So Mulvaney and the vice president, by the way, Pence tried to find a number to meet in the middle so they could reopen government and move forward from this debacle. And Trump felt that that was, that was undermining the negotiation tactics. No, it's not. That's how you get things done in this town. Trump is the worst negotiator ever. That whole, even the, the author of Art of the Deal, uh, who wrote it with Trump, um, Tony Schwartz, you should go look up some of his comments. He's saying that he actually realizes that everything that he wrote with Trump back then when that book came out was bullshit. That Trump is actually what, the worst negotiator ever. No kidding. No kidding. And that was one of the cons that Trump pulled on the American people, that he was this great businessman and negotiator. He's terrible. You can't bring the same tactics from being a sleazy real estate guy and casino owner into governing the president, uh, the United States of America. Real people's lives are at risk. The, the, the functioning government of the United States is at risk. Please. Our allies overseas are laughing at us because we're not, we're not working. The, the government is not working here because Trump isn't governing. So yeah, that was the, that was the grievance, but the, you know, the idea of, of border security, you know, Trump now has changed his language a little bit. And, and if you've been watching his tweets, he's been tweeting more hysterically lately. And, uh, that's always a sign that there's something, you know, he's, he's worried about something and he keeps trying to say that the reporting is fake news and, you know, we're all nuts. It's all of us. It's us. It's not him. And that's when, you know, you know, he goes back to his bread and butter, bread and butter. I call it the propaganda playbook. It's the fake news. They're out to get me. It's the deep state. Don't believe what you read and hear. Only believe me. Okay. And there are those that will do that. <laughs> but I'm hoping that less and less and that the, the, the majority of the American people who see through this bullshit act finally wake up but most importantly republicans in the senate need to wake up where speaking of where the hell has mitch mcconnell been he's been weirdly silent during this and not for nothing he's been an enabler also come on trump couldn't get away with a lot of the stuff that he's doing without mitch mcconnell's acquiescence i can't imagine though that he actually thinks that this is good for the country i just don't know what mitch mcconnell's end game is here but he is up for re-election, by the way, in 2020. And Mitch McConnell, he controls, he's a, he has a lot of power. 
Senate Majority Leader has a lot of power. Yes, the House is run by Nancy Pelosi and Democrats, but it doesn't matter what they do um, if the Senate won't pass the laws, won't take the laws up on their side. They'll just die in the Senate. So Mitch McConnell, man, you need to step up, cut this shit and hold, start holding Trump accountable. And Senate Republicans, step up. A lot of you have been weirdly silent, too, about what's been going on. This idea of a national emergency, uh, declaring that to get out of this mess. All of this is so bad for our constitutional system. You guys complained, and rightfully so, about President Obama and what he did by circumventing Congress to solve a political policy problem. Like DACA. Challenged it in court and the whole thing. And... Republicans were very concerned about that type of executive overreach. Our founding fathers set up co-equal branches of government for checks and balances for a reason. And that legislation was supposed to originate with the House, I mean with the Congress, the legislative branch. And here we are now where the tables are turned and all of a sudden you guys don't have a problem with this? No. You guys are hypocrites if you don't speak up more. What? Where's the line? Where's the line going to be? Where's the line going to be? Now, this shutdown affects more people than people realize. Like I brought up Homeland Security. You know, that's, like I said, the Coast Guard. That's Secret Service, by the way. Border, secure, border Patrol. Customs and Border. TSA. Um, you know, the more that people see how this is affecting everyday life, the more I think there'll, there'll be pressure on Trump to have to do something. And I don't know, he's probably going to end up with this national security emergency, this national emergency, which is ridiculous. We talk, I talk about that with Juliet Kayyem also, the implications of that. He's, he has the ability to do it, but should he is, is a whole different discussion. And most legal scholars, constitutional scholars, national security experts all say absolutely not. Even some senators are saying no. Senator Ron Johnson, he's this he's the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate from Wisconsin. He over the weekend said, not a good idea. You declare a national emergency, you never can get the wall built. Why? Because if the goal is to get the get the wall built or get the, you know, fence, whatever the hell Trump is calling it now, steel slat, bollard wall, whatever, that's not the way to do it because it's gonna get tied up in court. And it should. Because it means major eminent domain taking people's private property to build this damn thing, which is another reason why parts of the wall that was um, or the fencing that was passed during the Secure Fence Act in 2006, it took a little while to build it because there was a lot of, you know, you have to go through eminent domain, environmental impact studies of of all this stuff. It's not as easy as, okay, we're going to build a wall. Let's go build it. No. And this, if he declares a national emergency, it will be tied up in court for years and there'll be no wall built ever. So that's a bunch of bullshit too. It's another con. If you want to solve the problem, the president needs to listen to people like Congressman Will Hurd, who is a Republican, former CIA operative, who represents a district in Texas that has the most border with Mexico, the largest border with Mexico, his district. I think it's 800 miles, something like that. Will Hurd has been the most pragmatic, informed voice on this entire discussion. He knows what's going on. This is his district. 
And he talked about, yes, there's fencing or a wall, or whatever, in certain areas, that's fine. But you need to invest in technology. You need to invest in increasing Border Patrol pay. You need to invest in other technologies at ports of entry. We need to invest in more immigration judges, in ICE. Like there, It's a multilateral approach. Multifaceted. It's not just about a damn fence. Will Hurd, keep 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 watch on him. He's what he has to say about this issue is one is one of the smartest takes because it affects his district. He knows what he's talking about. He's been working on it for years. I wish more Republicans would stand up the way he has. Somebody, some other folks who are you know average Americans out there that are affected by the shutdown are farmers. People are forgetting this. The Department of Agriculture is also unfunded. And recently on CNN, well, farmers have been impacted by Trump's tariffs, by the way, um, in, you know, this whole trade, this sort of faux trade war with China and, and Trump imposing these tariffs. It's hurting our farmers in places like Iowa and the Midwest. Uh, and recently on CNN, there was a farmer. He's a black farmer, actually. Uh, his name is John Boyd. He's a soybean farmer, fourth generation farmer. He was on CNN talking about the impact, and I thought that um, it, it was good to hear from him directly. Take a listen. So you're a soybean farmer. Um, how is this shutdown, yes. the government shutdown, impacting you and other farmers? Well, basically, right now, my farming operation is shut down, and uh, the United States Department of Agriculture is closed, and the president promised soybean producers like myself and the other 30,000 soybean producers around the country a uh, bailout, a relief package for tolls to about $1.65 a bushel for farming operations like mine. And since the government is closed, I can't get my check. And we've been calling and calling and calling, and it's been more delays. And this all stemmed from the president's uh, 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 lowest, lowest prices in history for, for farmers due to the president's tariffs. In 2012, I was selling soybeans for roughly $16 a bushel. And today, I'm selling soybeans for $8 a bushel. So we're facing the lowest prices, and now we can't get our relief uh, payments from the United States Department of Agriculture. And I believe it's, it's because poor leadership and bad decisions by uh, President Trump. So there you have it. In the words of an actual farmer who is being impacted by this, what's it, what's it going to take? for people to turn to turn on Trump on this. I just don't know how he's going to, he claims he's going to, you know, he's holding steadfast on this. He's not going to budge. It's got to come to an end at some point because members of Congress and the American people are not going to put up with this temper tantrum much longer. They're not, nor should they, nor should they. So um, with that, we've got uh, the shutdown going on. It's ongoing. God knows when it's going to end. We also have these, Big stories over the weekend, back to the whole Russia stuff with Trump, which has kind of been knocked out of the news a little bit because of the shutdown. But it's still ongoing and there's a lot happening. There were two major stories, um, one from the New York Times that talked about how the FBI actually opened up a counterintelligence investigation into the president of the United States after he fired James Comey in 2017. What does that mean? Um, Julia Kayyem is going to talk about the significance of this in, in more depth. But basically, the FBI was so concerned by the president's behavior with Russia that they decided they needed to start 
monitoring it to make sure that this guy wasn't a potential asset for the Russian government, that he wasn't working against the interests of the United States. I mean, this is no joke. It's it's something straight out of a spy novel. It really is. But this is this is real life, folks. Just imagine that. And this is not just people that were out for Trump and they don't like him. They think he's this or that. No. Okay. These are serious professionals that they felt that this was going on. And CNN uh, broke a story that that said they were they obtained transcripts of FBI officials testifying to members of Congress explaining why they felt the need to do this, open this investigation into Trump back then. And then Robert Mueller, the special counsel, was appointed. So that investigation was swept up into one big special counsel thing. But holy shit, that's insane. But not really. If you go back in hindsight and you look at all the things Trump has said and done concerning Russia, it's uh, I get it. And then the other story was the fact that Donald Trump actively prohibited the notes from his meetings with Vladimir Putin from being distributed to his own uh, national security and foreign policy advisors. So when Donald Trump met with Putin, which has been a couple of times, the only people in the room with him have been the interpreters. That's it. That's highly unusual, especially during Helsinki, which was a disaster of a, of a, of a uh, summit Trump stopped the interpreter and said, give me your notes, like confiscated the notes from the interpreter so that no one could get them. So no one would ever know there'd be no official readout of what happened. Why? What are you hiding? What are you hiding? That to me is, is, that's not the behavior of someone who has nothing to hide. It just isn't. And it also puts our country Again, our, our policy experts and advisors, uh, who, people who are supposed to be there to, to follow up and, and guide the president on these things, these people are left out in the dark. I mean, and you know, he was, Donald Trump was on freaking Judge Jeanine's show over the weekend on Fox News, of course, and he called in and she asked him flat out, like, are you an, an asset for Russia? Are you working for the for the Russians? And Trump never actually said no. I would encourage you to go back and read the transcript or just even look at the clip. He goes on this whole diatribe attacking uh, the FBI and attacking the New York Times and all, the, all this stuff. And instead of just saying no, that's absurd, he said, oh, that's insulting. But he never says no. He goes on these ad hominem attacks which is a classic tactic when you're losing the argument. I learned that my freshman year in college when I took a debate class. You go on an ad hominem attack when it's a personal attack when you're losing the argument to substitute the issue or you change the subject. Tactics that a lot of Trump people use all the time because they're constantly losing the arguments. They're illogical. Anybody else would have just unequivocally said no. But this guy can't seem to do that. That's scary. So we've got multiple investigations going on with Donald Trump, multiple, and not one of them is based off of fake anything. None of it. You know who said most honest people I know 
are not under FBI investigation, let alone two. You know who said that? Kellyanne Conway. She said that in 2016, talking about Hillary Clinton. Well, guess what, Ms. Conway? Guess who you work for? You don't work for an honorable, honorable person. So what does that say about you? On that note, <laughs> I want to bring in my guest, Juliet Kayem, who, I'm, uh, who I mentioned was a assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. She's a Harvard Law professor, and she's also the author of a book called Security Moms and a CNN national security analyst. And I'm ha- all around badass, as I say, and I'm happy to welcome her to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Well, as always, I'm, I'm excited to bring on a smart woman onto Honestly Speaking with Tara because I like to highlight smart women. And it's important for people to hear, uh, I think, not only experts in their field, but to see that there are experts that you wouldn't expect. And, yeah. you know, there aren't as many experts in the national security field that are women that people see oftentimes. And I'm proud to be able to bring on one of those. And my friend and fellow CNN analyst, Juliet Kayyem, not only is she badass when it comes to national security, but she's also a professor at Harvard and she's written a book called Security Moms. So she knows what she's talking about. So, Juliet, welcome to Honestly so, Speaking with so Tara. So great to have to have more than a two minute conversation with you. I'm really, ex- I'm despite the news, I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. Oh no, it's my pleasure. When when I saw over the weekend the news that was breaking um, between the FBI story about the FBI actually opening a counterintelligence investigation into the president of the United States because they were so concerned about his behavior toward Russia, and then the follow up story about the fact that. Every meeting that Donald Trump has ever had with Vladimir Putin, there are no official notes available that he actively sought to keep those notes away from his advisors. It was, I said, you know, I need to have someone that understands the impact of this. And you had some great appearances on CNN over the weekend talking about it. So I said, she's got to come on the show. (laughs) Well, no, thank you for having me. It's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, you have these moments when all these pieces are are, are put together, or all these stories come out where you, you know, you just you, you feel the the gravity of of what what is happening to this country, and and I think this weekend was one of them for a lot of people. You know, it beyond the headlines and the breaking news, it's just like there's something deeply structurally wrong with um, uh, with what is happening and and the allegiances of our president. So, well, what jumped out to you the most? Because I think for our listener, yeah. you know, for the, the casual listener, the person who kind of just is interested in what's going on, but there's so much information that, that people are bombarded with who aren't, you know, immersed in it like we are every day, break down basically why these two stories are so mm-hmm. frightening and important and why people should care. What is the most significant part of this? No, I'm glad you asked that because now we have the opportunity for me to, you know, do something more than in 90 seconds. I think... Yes. Uh, for the average listener who may not, you know, be following every dev, uh, headline or even uh, remember every headline uh, over the last three or two and a half years about 
uh, Trump and his team's uh, sort of relationship with the Russians and with Putin, um, I think it's important to take a step back and see how these two stories fit into, I think, a larger narrative. And you said you saw me on CNN. I think a lot of people responded to what I was saying, which was take the step back and and think about a president who is compromised. So forget the criminal liability, forget whether he can testify, you know, forget the Mueller approach. Just think, is the president compromised so that his motivations are uh, to support a hostile foreign power as compared to the United States? And when you ask that question, you say, okay, well, is there evidence to any evidence to suggest otherwise? And I think you have to be honest with yourself uh, and say, no. I mean, everything that the president has done, plus some, uh, shows a president whose um, who's allegiances, rather than talking about specific crimes, um, uh, are, are in question. And so I, I really focus on this word compromise, because then I think everything makes sense, including the two stories this weekend. So the first, of course, Friday's breaking um, story from the New York Times about the FBI's counterintelligence investigation uh, beginning um, uh, immediately after the President Trump fired Comey. So you have all the issues about, my God, the FBI has started a counterintelligence right. uh, investigation Ex- against the president. Explain um, what that means, because I I, okay. I know what that means, but most people are like, well, what is that? What yeah. is a counterintelligence so investigation? Like, what is that? So your goal in a counterintelligence investigation is not a prosecution. It is not. I, so so let's 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 let me explain to you. So a norm, a normal, a, a historical counterintelligence invest, investigation would be um, there's a Russian businessman doing business in Akron, Ohio, uh, you know, to buy. Uh, to buy eggs from uh, a farm there, right? And um, but some weird stuff is going on. He's making lots of trips to D.C. And he seems to have uh, be meeting with uh, various, you know, untoward people. So you would start a counterintelligence investigation against him based on maybe his conduct or things that you've picked up. Um, and your goal isn't to put him in jail. Your goal is essentially disruption. Stop whatever he's doing because you know, basically spying happens all the time and you basically just want to be able to disrupt um, or minimize any harm that he may be doing either to the United States or United States business. So and gather information, goal, right? And, and to gather, gather information, information to see is this, a, is this a larger issue? Is there a larger plot against the United States? Like what's going on here? Exactly. And so so if you think about the motivations for the FBI, so they already, you know, they're, they're, they have criminal investigations. They do that uh, day in and day out. But they also have this counterintelligence mandate, which is, you know, collecting information, disrupting um, uh, intelligence efforts by uh, foreign powers or for, uh, foreign people. And so that so for them to open a counterintelligence investigation against Trump meant not that he did something criminally wrong, although those investigations are going on, but that his conduct was essentially aiding and abetting a hostile foreign power. So like, you know, take a step back. Okay. So that is remarkable. That is right. a, a, it's like that something is a, out of a movie. It's like, it's, it's like a, it's a clancy movie. Right. It's, it's something out of a movie and it's something that wouldn't have been done lightly by the FBI. Now the, right. the New York times story um, you know, talks of you know various things that President Trump did to make them take this step or to cause them to take the step. And, and honestly, we don't know where this investigation went because it was handed over to Mueller. But that story is consistent with 
this narrative of a compromised president because his firing of Comey, his his boasting to the Russians in the Oval Office, you know, everything that was going on in that couple month period, uh, you know, led led serious FBI agents to believe that he was um, he was uh, uh, the president was a harm to national security and aiding a hostile foreign power. So Just let that that's sink that in. Story. Yeah, yeah, I mean to let that sink in for a second. That sometimes, sometimes you. Can't. I mean, I you know, it is um, it, there. Are, yeah, as I said, I have these. You know, everyone will say say to me, uh, you know, you're so calm on TV. I was like, I have my moments. You know, what? my job. You know, my job on TV is not to freak everyone out, but. Um, I have my moments when you actually think about what's going on. And, yeah. um, and, and then you fast forward to, um, Oh, just one more thing about that. Yeah. Um, so CNN ha- broke news about, uh, ob- ob- yeah, obtaining the transcripts between FBI officials, uh, during, I believe it was closed door congressional testimony where they were explaining what led up to this counterintelligence, why they felt that they needed to do this. Um, so there's, there, there's justification for it that we now have access to, um, not the specific necessarily specific facts, but what they're, mm-hmm. what they were thinking. And I think that's important too. This is not something that was made up or overzealous F corrupt FBI agents that the president would make you believe with his tweets, yeah. his irresponsible tweets, constantly attacking our FBI. Um, they're not perfect, but they're also good men and women that are every day out to protect this country and for them to take this extraordinary step. And also the DOJ has to approve it. So yeah. there are multiple layers of approvals. This is not some willy nilly decision to just open up an investigation because they want to get Trump. I'm so glad you said that because that is really important that not the So a couple things, you know, that there was tremendous oversight over this decision, that it wouldn't, wouldn't have just stayed in the FBI. It would have been sent over to DOJ. And this is where Rod Rosenstein, uh, Rosenstein becomes a, you know, key figure again. Um, and, um, and we also don't know to what extent uh, the gang of eight, that's the term we use right. to describe the, the top leadership um, in the House and Senate intelligence uh, committees, as well as the top leadership in House and Senate, we don't know to what extent the Gang of Eight would have been notified. Uh, people will remember Devin Nunes was the head of the House Intelligence Committee for some time, did a lot of things that seemed to um, try to undermine their investigation. Terrible. Yeah, and terrible. if he knew, I mean, if he knew, um, that would begin to explain some of his conduct that he was trying to protect the president from uh, these investigations. Now, it's also important to point out that the Intelligence Committee, now I worked on Capitol Hill for seven years, and so I understand how certain the dynamics of certain committees, and some are more political than others. Um, foreign affairs and intelligence were usually not as political as others because of the um, the idea that politics ends at the water's edge. Uh, and Devin Nunes's tenure as chairman of the yeah. Intelligence Committee absolutely destroyed the normal day-to-day operations and decorum of the Intelligence Committee. His yeah. overt politic- politicization of that committee and going back and sharing with the White House, God knows what, is such a violation um, I, I could I was I couldn't have been happier that he lost his chairmanship. And this is coming from a lifelong Republican who for yeah. the first time in her life was rooting against Republicans controlling the House of Representatives for reasons like no, that. No, I think 
I know. No, I think I think that's exactly right. Remember that incident where he like jumps into a cab and runs to right. the White House. I kind of wonder, you know, like had he just been briefed on this? But um, I mean, you talk about you know being a lifelong Republican. Imagine trying to teach this stuff now. I mean, I have been teaching in Homeland Security and National Security at, at Harvard's Kennedy School for ten years now, on and off with uh, government positions. And you know, you have this like sort of you know, policy, you know, you sort of like, there's like rules, right? There were rules, <laughs> right. and, you know, Democrats and Republicans disagreed on, you know, the relative weight of, you know, do you put more on border enforcement or more on, you know, the dreamers? Like those are like, you know, rational public, public sure. policy debates. And sure. now there's like, wait, I can't even talk about oversight with intel- with the with the gang of eight in a meaningful way anymore because everyone will burst out laughing. Now my students know, you know, I can't say, oh, there's this, these oversight committees that are rigorous and non-political because they see Devin Nunes. So right. I think that I think that there's a, a connection to what ha- what is happening in Congress um, a- as well. And um, and uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, the House is 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 going to be uh, calling in people for all these all these stories, including the second one, which, you know, uh, popped uh, popped up in The Washington Post on Saturday. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Um uh. So we've seen over the last couple of years, Donald Trump's just seemingly subservient approach to Putin. He worships him. He's always bowing at his feet. Uh, He gives him the benefit of the doubt. But it is indisputable at this point that the Russians meddled in our elections. And we all know that the Russians would like nothing more than to see absolute chaos in our democratic system in the United States because they want to rule the world. Okay. This is nothing, (laughs) this is nothing new. Okay. And yet Donald Trump, the president of the United States has bent over backwards to make sure that he doesn't offend Vladimir Putin. And through multiple meetings, um, this story that came out, uh, was it the post? I think it was Washington Post that broke this one. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the best. Uh, yeah. Greg Miller, one of the yes. a great reporters. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Post and the Times, they have a friendly rivalry. And so usually when the Times breaks a big story, there's one you know, right behind it with the Post. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it's great. It makes as, great we like, as we like to say, as national security analysts can make uh, make weekends great again. Oh, my gosh. Like, Things will be quiet Wednesday, Thursday, and then like, you know, Friday and Saturday, you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> right, right. And that's, that seems to be the pattern over the last two and a half years with this yeah. Trump, you know. For us in, in political communications, the weekends used to be the time where you could actually go get a drink and go to brunch and not have to worry about anything till Monday because any news dump on Friday, nobody cared about. Not anymore. Those days are over. It's crazy. Um, but this story where you're talking about how Donald Trump would not allow any officials into meetings with him between him and Putin. And then he like confiscated the notes of the interpreter uh, to make sure to shield anyone outside of him from these, from these conversations. So we never have an official accounting of what they actually freaking talked about. That is absolutely unheard of. Explain why that's problematic. So it's it's problematic in in lots of ways. There's the legal problematic, which is of course we have a we have Presidential Records Act, which means that White Houses have to keep uh, documents of what they're doing. And um, so there's the legal side, but let's put that away because you know lawyers will debate that and just look at the national security side of it. Um, so uh, it is almost inconceivable that uh, that the president would have been having these meetings without 
two people in the room. So one would be a translator, which he did have, obviously. And then the other would be a senior advisor who could, you know, who wasn't in the throes of the conversation or throes of the translating the conversation and could then, you know, figure out what happened and then get the bureaucracy to move on what happened, right? We, we said we would do X, Y, and Z. Is that feasible? Mm -hmm. And that's how, once again, in a normal world, it should work. So that person, the policy person, whether it's a national security advisor or a senior director for Russia, they're not in the room. So that's unique, not, not unprecedented, but unique. The, the unprecedented nature of this is President Trump is in a room, there is a translator. The translator is taking notes that are generally, uh, from my experience, um, not, you know, President Trump said this, uh, Putin said that, Trump said this. They're more sort of um, like keyword searches. That's what their notebooks would look like because they're translating in real time. So they want to remember key words, key things um, stated, hmm. um, uh, a size, whatever it is, because they're going to have to translate it. And especially, honestly, between you and I and everyone listening, like Trump has got to be impossible. Oh, could you imagine? You can barely understand him in English right. in terms of the flow of <laughs> the flow of consciousness. You know? So, um, so apparently, or what we know is those notes were taken from the translator and uh, gotten rid of specifically by Trump. He asked for the notes and uh, and no one has seen them. And we know this because, can you imagine working at this White House, his advisors who don't know what happened in the room are trying to figure out what the heck did the president do mm -hmm. um, and uh, start asking around. And so to me, this is another, you know, this is part of the the um, compromise narrative that I'm really pushing. So I, you know, there's going to be there's going to be people indicted. Maybe Don Jr. Maybe Jared. That's a different issue than this. This uh, you know the president is compromised. And um, and and you know we didn't mention it, but I just have to every time I talk about this. You know you, you know, never forget Helsinki because yes. if you it's not just Trump's behavior, right? The weird things he's doing by throwing out notes or, you know, meeting with Putin alone and all the phone calls we don't know about. Right. right? Cause apparently uh, they talk on a regular basis, which is also yeah. not normal. Weird. Right. That's and just so, strange. Let's remind yeah. everyone, Russia is an enemy of the United States. It we, attacked the United States. I mean, it did it, you right. know, in the 2016 Unequivocally, election. Unequivocally, despite what Fox News tells you, despite what Donald Trump's tweet storms tell you, the Russians are not our friends and they attack this country and our election system. That is indisputable. Continue. Right. No, that is right. And so, and so um, you know, and when you think about to Helsinki and that jaw-dropping moment all of us had that the president was parroting what Putin said rather than expressing U.S. interest. Um, Insane. Uh, Insane. Uh, Can I just yeah. ask you really quick, just as a personal yeah. note, do you remember where you were, like your feeling at the time watching, just to remind folks, yeah. Helsinki so, was the meeting where Trump and Putin um, got together and finally had their first real um, bilateral meeting. And yeah. it was done in Helsinki <laughs> and it was over the summer and people watched this with interest because of Trump's behavior leading up to this. And we wanted to see how he how he behaved. And it was jaw droppingly alarming to people who are experts yeah. in this area. No, I mean, jaw dropping is like, is it, so I'll tell you where I was. So, yeah. so I have like, you know, a real job as well. You know, I'm not watching <laughs> CNN all the time. Um, in fact, I, I recommend not because your, your blood right. pressure will go. That's right. Um, That's right. So I, um, 
sort of thought, oh, it might not be that interesting. Or I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought, oh, I'll just catch it after the fact. And then, um, so I was at work and I started just looking at Twitter and I'm like, honestly, I'm like, no effing, you know, uh, forking way, you know, I, I'm like, no way. And so I, yeah, I turn on the TV through my computer, um, and just start watching it and just thinking like, am I, I was sort of wondering, am I experiencing this like everyone else? And mm-hmm. then the immediate, CNN immediately turns to Anderson Cooper, who, you know, is like, you know, his white hair was whiter, you know, like you're like, yes. you know, he's standing there like, like whatever you're thinking, I'm thinking too. And so that's where I was. And I think it's just important for people to remember this isn't, a, you know, this isn't like we have a wacky president kind of conduct. We have a president who is compromised. And I, do, I can't tell your listeners, I know specifically, you know, is it the financial stuff? Is it the election collusion stuff? Is it the dossier and, 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 you know, and, and, uh, you know, well, I won't say it, but, you know, and, and stuff that, you Mm -hmm. know, is is personally disgusting. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I do know that, that two years later, you'd have to have blind and willful ignorance uh, to believe that the president is acting independently of Putin's uh, motivations at this stage. And motivations that are personally beneficial to Donald Trump, considering how much he's wanted to do business in Russia since 1987, when he first went over there. there, He has a long history of of personal business dealings with Russians. And so this, this is not happening in a vacuum. Uh, my friend Max Boot, who ha- was a guest here on Honestly Speaking a couple yeah, weeks ago, yeah. um, I know that you retweeted this, but yeah. Max Boot wrote uh, a, a piece called 18 Reasons Trump Could Be a Russian Asset. Imagine. I mean, that's yeah. like, I suggest everybody take a look at that. He, he puts together a very interesting case, uh, a little more in depth of what you just said, pointing out all of the things. It, 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 it's just, it's scary to think. But he's. But yeah. what has he done? The question is, what has, has Trump done to make us think otherwise? Right. It, nothing. Nothing. And that was my point. But nothing. And and so now you're sort of, you know, now you know, I won't get into rampant speculation. But, you know, now, you know, it does seem like the bureaucracy is starting to leak stuff to, you know, to, to reporters that is really, you know, this is like, you know, pretty deep stuff. I wonder. Well, I don't you know, say deep stuff. It, don't, some people I don't, don't deep state. <laughs> I meant, I meant, I meant um, profound. I meant, you know, significant. This isn't gossip about Melania. You know, this is like significant. And also, um, well, it goes back sort of, to anonymous, right? That, yeah. that, that the anonymous exactly. staffer who wrote that extraordinary op-ed uh, over the summer as well, toward the end of the summer, basically saying there are those of us who see what's going on, and we're trying our best to keep our, keep the wheels on the bus here. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm definitely sort of very insistent on this, like. You know, I, I sort of wonder, and I'm wondering out loud, you know, is, you know, H.R. McMaster, he would have been the person um, who would have wanted to find out what happened in that meeting. He's now out, you know, what what is he saying and doing? And I do wish, you know, while people say, well, Mattis, you know, resigned under protest for the kind of president Trump is, but, you know, I would really like these people not simply to resign, but I think they need to come out. Like, where, Mattis I needs agree. to be on 60 Minutes next Sunday. Yeah. Like, where is he? This is not enough to resign anymore. We are at, um, you're at a real crisis now where um, the system is folding on itself and, um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and Mueller is not going to be, 
you know, this nirvana. Mueller is, is going to do his indictments, and those indictments may lead to the president resigning because it may involve his kids or his son-in-law. But in the end, the report is a recommend is a is a narrative to what we would hope would be responsible political actors, Senate Republicans, right. uh, who would act on it. And I, I, you know, I haven't, I'm not convinced yet that, you know, that, that, that Republican senators are acting responsibly, though, um, you know, their silence, their relative silence this weekend has been interesting. It has been. And Mitch McConnell's relative absence oh, from gosh. what's been going on has been curious, curious. I mean, he's pretty wily when it comes to these things, but he, you know, what are you, what are you up to Mitch? Because yeah. he really controls a lot of this, including the shutdown. Um, and since you were, I want to talk a little bit about that since we're talking about crises, yeah. Yeah. um, you were an assistant secretary, um, uh, at the department of Homeland security under the Obama administration. So you have a little bit of insight into this. A lot of people don't realize that the entire department of Homeland security is currently unfunded because, and shut yeah. down. Now, there are 320,000 federal workers who are deemed essential workers, including my husband, who is a federal law enforcement officer who has been working without pay, Um, 12 hour shifts and, you know, you know, not necessarily getting days off when they're supposed to. Their leave requests, annual leave requests have been denied. Uh, It's a mess. It's a mess. And um So from your perspective, looking at this shutdown and how this impacts our country, not only the, you know, the men and women and their families, the TSA, the Coast Guard, uh, there's a lot of, you know, it's more than just garbage overflowing in our national parks. Um, I cannot emphasize enough how damaging this is to our to our country and to something like the Department of Homeland Security. Talk yeah. a little bit about what you see and, if, and you know, if you heard from any, anyone or just even yeah. how this oh, have, compromises have, the institution. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and uh, th- this idea that, oh, you know, we'll get back to normal with just the next paycheck once that comes is ridiculous. And I and I really I feel for you. I mean, I I think what you know, I you know, um, and you're one of the lucky ones, I would assume, because both of you are working and yes. you can have given the system and, and still you're stressed out. I'm stressed out. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, in the sense of. You, you know, my my husband's a federal judge. So in terms of making plans, like, mm-hmm. you know, how do you think about the year ahead? You know, what about vacations? You just the, the easy stuff is stressful for us. Imagine if you were worried about the next payment or you had a sick kid or so I think I, I put it into three different kinds of impacts on national security. So one is, of course, just, you know, personnel um, issues and, and adding recruitment to that. So you're a TSA agent, you're making 22 to $24,000 a year. It's not an, it's not a fun job. You're looking at luggage all the time. You're now not getting paid. You're, 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 you're likely living paycheck to paycheck. Those are stresses that impact your ability to concentrate, your desire to go to work, your ability to go into work. These TSA agents are not boycotting. They are Uber and Lyft drivers trying to get cash into their bank accounts. Um, and then, of course, recruitment, right? Because, you know, uh, we're not recruiting, right? So that's the first thing is just your basic personnel issues. I mean, I think the second is we delude ourselves to think that this isn't having an impact on, you know, the layered security that we 
uh, have built around the homeland. So, you know, we talk about layered, you know, there's different pieces to airport security, border security. Uh, one piece of that goes away. One piece of that doesn't show up. It's going to have an impact. And you're starting to see that, you know, in Miami and other airports that have to respond because the operational uh, you know, sort of sanctity of safety and security, which motivates these agencies, is now being undermined. And then I think the third area where it impacts national security, and the Times reported a little bit on this today, was, of course, um, uh, uh, abroad. Uh, you look, the United States is broken, um, and it's broken for a lot of reasons. Putin is one reason why, uh, but our president is another reason why. Uh, you don't exude strength. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't make people... Um, uh, either fear or love us, depending on what we want them to do, given the position we're in. Our diplomats aren't getting paid. Uh, they are, you know, our, our reflection to the world is of a country not functioning. Mm -hmm. And is it short term not functioning or is this the end of the Roman Republic, so to speak? Right. Uh, uh, you know, only time will tell. So it's, it is real. I talking to a former head of the TSA yesterday, who had also been in the Coast Guard. Um, and he reminded me that, um, you know, for all of our talk of loving our veterans, um, the Coast Guard uh, uh, retirees are also not getting paid because the veterans of the Coast Guard's budget is tied with Coast Guard appropriations. So we have people in their 60s and 70s who are not getting their, uh, their pensions either. So it's I'm just glad a, that you brought that up because I think the, most people don't realize that the Coast Guard is under the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Despite being military, it's not funded by the, um, the Defense Department, which is funded during this, this shutdown. Um, yeah. And so that people need to know that. Like, we're our Coast Guard. And, you know, the Coast Guard is more than just glorified lifeguards, okay? These guys are the ones who are uh, intercepting the yep. tons and tons of cocaine and heroin and illegal drugs that come through our ports, coming over our, um, our seas. Um, I was just in Miami and Key West recently, um, where they're very active with that down there. And these people are not getting paid. So the president of the United States is bitching and complaining about a border security crisis um, and about drugs flooding into this country. Yet the people who are on the front lines doing this, including Border Patrol and Customs and Border Protection, which are all also not funded right now. All these people are working without pay. Um, they're at the, in the crosshairs of this. And yet the president says that, that there's a crisis. It's so counterintuitive. It's, it, I can't stand it. Because yeah, it's really it, not about it, solving a problem. It's about a political right. ploy and a campaign promise that he knew good and hell damn well he could never fulfill. And now he's backed himself into a corner. Um, with that, um, do you really think that there is a crisis? Now, there's a problem. But is there a crisis yeah, that warrants no. the president declaring a national emergency? Like, no. talk a little bit yeah, about the, what is, that means. Is. So I teach crisis management in my first lectures. Everyone, you know, it's going to, I've said it so many <laughs> times now, it's going to be redundant. So it's important to, to, to separate, um, uh, you know, three, to separate standard operating procedure from three different categories uh, uh, that, that are different than your standard operating procedure, which is, you know, you're just, you know, doing your job. So the first is what we call a public policy problem, right? That is, something's not working. Uh, you know, our education system isn't, uh, you know, isn't, isn't delivering for, uh, you know, kids, uh, at, at, at risk kids, um, our, um, healthcare system, you know, those are public policy problems in which the solution is, you know, either 
uh, changes in performance or changes in law and policy. So that's, you know, that's, and that's what we deal with every day. There's never been a perfect type in which there hasn't been a public policy problem. The second grouping is what we call an emergency. So an emergency is a disruption to that system, right? But that was anticipated or that you could have anticipated and that, you know, disrupts the system, but that it can get back to normal. So let's think, think of, of a, Hurricane Katrina. A, a Hurricane Katrina or even a terrorist incident, right. you know, however horrible that, you know, you know, a, 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 an attack in you know, you know, the, the terrorist attack in, or, in a bar in Orlando is a tragedy and an emergency, but it is the system knows how to respond to that in magnitude. Right. I mean, in, in, in something. the third is what we call a crisis. And those are ones in which the norm, the standard operating procedure cannot adapt to the situation at hand. And so those are very rare because in most instances, you know, you, you, you actually can respond. And so what the president is trying to do, and so you think of a war as being a crisis, right? You'd have, you right. know, you have to like, so would you so what consider the 9-11 to be that level or would 9-11 be uh, number no, two? No, uh, no, 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 no. 9-11 is number two. 9-11, okay. 9-11 is, is a, what we call a black swan event, right? It changes the course of history, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't change the way that uh, that the United States functioned. Got it. I would call I would call the decision to go to war in some ways, or in particular Iraq, is like you know in in uh, uh, a war. Actually, the conduct of war is being sort of a crisis, and it's you know, and these are different than scandals, right? So scandal is not you know that's you know whatever's happening with the Bezos family. That's a scandal. That's not that's not even emergency, right? So there's but but just a long way of saying there's different categories, but but you reserve crisis for when the system cannot hold. Um, and World War II, perfect example, right? So, so um, the president is conflating a public policy problem, which anyone who's worked in the border knows, right? We, we still have border enforcement issues. We have um, too many un, un, um, uh, 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 undocumented um, immigrants here in the United States. We, we need to address the dreamers because every, every kind and moral person believes that they sort of are different, right? right. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so those are public policy problems, which Democrats and Republicans for, you know, debated a lot, a lot of consistency. That's the untold story is, you know, for a lot of times it was, you know, it was George Bush and, and, um, and the Democrats who are, you know, were pushing for comprehensive immigration reform. And so the president is conflating the crisis, uh, the crisis, the president, you know, is, 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 is <laughs> right. He's trying to define it as a, um, as, uh, you know, I'm not getting my own way, right? You right. Know, that's crisis. And I think that's also why, and kudos to the media, the, 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 the White House was um, uh, so um, uh, uh, focused on lying about the numbers. Remember when they were lying about the number of terrorists that were coming yes. over the summer? They had to lie about the numbers because they... Um, uh, uh, because they didn't, because they couldn't, they, there was no other crisis. You had to lie about the right. numbers. Well, the numbers ended up being exposed. It's right. And they, and, and they actually, the white house, which rarely does this, they had to acknowledge that that, that was yeah. a mistake. 
um, which never happens. I mean, even Kellyanne Conway had to come out and say what Sarah Sanders was peddling, this 4,000 terrorist number, was not correct. Yet the yeah. vice president still went on um, interviews and still tried to parrot that, but changed the words a little bit. Uh, still pushing that, though, unless you were really paying attention, you didn't know the difference. Yeah. And I was like, that is unbelievable. And, and God bless Chris Wallace for calling out Sarah exactly. Sanders on it. And I think it was Jonathan, Car uh, who was it? I don't remember who the, who the vice president was on with that. Uh, no, I think it was Casey Hunt. Or Haley Jackson, I think it was a, an, an NBC reporter that called out the uh, Pence on it. We have to because you know facts right. still matter here. Um, well, you know, the, when you talk about these things, the the, the, the conversation can be rather depressing. <laughs> yeah. But I always like yeah. to, you know, always like to kind of contrast it a little sure. bit when I have guests on. But before I go to something a little less uh, intense, but the Atlantic just came out with the fifty biggest. Yeah. Um, norm-breaking moments of this presidency in a list they're, they're calling unthinkable. And I read through yeah. some of them, and a couple of them stuck out to me. Um, did you have a chance to see that? I did. I did. I, it's, 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 a, it's a great story. Yes. Um, as you are thinking in, in the, over the last two and a half years, of, or, well, three years of President well, yeah. Trump's been on the scene, but almost two years now of his presidency, what are the one or two most unthinkable moments to you, and what keeps you up at night? as we move forward. Okay. So those are different things in my mind. So the unthinkable is the line and the line that is, uh, parroted by an entire apparatus, uh, to support him. I think, I think, you know, two plus two equals four mm -hmm. becomes debatable in Trump land. And right. you're like, you know, and so I think for me, that's been the most destabilizing thing. Maybe also as, you know, someone who, um, is, you know, who's committed their life to public policy, you know, you and I may disagree about the content of that policy, but you and I would, would agree that two plus two equals four. Correct. So I think for me, that is something I still can't get. Maybe as a parent of three kids, you know, I'm like, you know, all I can say to my kids is the only thing I can tell you is in your lifetime, there will be not be a worse president, right? That's all I can tell <laughs> yeah. you. Let's, let's hope. Yeah. Let's hope, for yeah. God's sakes. I don't yeah. think anybody thought that this was possible. So, you yeah. know, please. I think that's partly why we're all motivated to do what we do, is to make sure that this shit never happens again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that the, the, the de destabilizing, what's the thing that keeps me up at night, um, is where we started in this conversation, is I'm now you know, quite confident. Um, I, you know, I don't know the specifics. I can't say the whys. But if you just take a step back and look at the totality of conduct over the last three years, or even before that, when he was trying to push Trump Tower, um, uh, Moscow, um, that the president is compromised by uh, hostile foreign power um, and that his um, motivations and his allegiances are with protecting whatever it is that he's compromised by. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a you know, wake up in the middle of the night moment. Um, but now let me end with a little bit of good news. I am, um, the system is holding. It's battered, man. It is battered. Yes. And, it's, and I don't, you know, I don't know, you know, and I, I take the Phil Mudd, in other words, CNN, and I'll see a view of, we can do this for four years, we can't do it for eight. I, I sort of agree with that. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> is holding. 2018 and the election and, and, you know, kudos to Republicans like you who understood, you know, that you don't have to love Democrats to vote for Democrats, mm -hmm. that, that this was, this was about the United States. And, 
um, and uh, um, uh, you know that the system is holding in all sorts of ways, whether it's the judiciary and now it's the House, and you know whether it's the leakers and um, or the the people who are leaving the administration, obviously the media um, and the American public. Look, the polling is not, you know, if he were 70% approval rating you, I'd be moving to Canada right behind you, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, the thing is, this is a small, this is a minority of the United States of people who, um, who, who, who ought to know better and don't. Um, and, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, that's a whole different know, discussion. I need to, I, that is a, a fascinating political oh, sociological discussion that, um, I think political scientists will be having for decades to come, but yeah. <laughs> that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you're right. And, um, I, I appreciate that, the, the, uh, the accolades on that, but it's, I just thought, I felt like it's the right thing to do. Like we have to put part uh, country over party. We have to just doing the right thing at this point is a non should be a nonpartisan affair, um, and we still have a long way to go. And I and I try to encourage more and more Republicans and conservatives like myself who have felt politically homeless to speak up and know that that makes a difference. And that's partially why yeah. I, I sit on the board of Stand Up Republic, which was started by Evan McMullen and Mindy Finn, because they looked at what was going on. Um, you know, Evan ran for president. I actually voted for him. I did not vote for Hillary or Trump. Um, I had my issues with Hillary Clinton and I just morally couldn't do it. And um, but I uh, there's a part of me that I felt like, well, if she'd won, we could have dealt with it. Um, but I wasn't because I, I, like, I yeah. can't cast a vote for her. But, you know, um, yeah. But that's what Stand Up Republic does. It's it's focusing on preserving the democratic norms, institutions, and ideals that are being challenged by this president. And it's the, the, the macro picture of we've got to make sure those institutions hold if we want to keep right. the republic together. So I think that's um, right. And yeah, I think, I think it, we can all agree yeah. on that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I like I sometimes think like. I, I will feel like things are normal when I stop retweeting, you know, Max Boot, who's like, you know, <laughs> whose substantive theory of the world is like, you know, how polar opposite to mine. I was right. like, I want to know that wish we were fighting again or, you right. know, but. Um, <laughs> right. Or I, when, yeah, I, I, or when me and Sally Cohn, who are diametrically opposed on almost everything public policy wise, but who have become best friends and traveled all over the country, having discussions on college campuses, demonstrating to people where you, people who have differences of uh, different viewpoints can actually have a civil conversation um, because we both agree that common decency is something that we should continue to um, reflect since it's gone. Yeah. You know, like I would, yeah. I, I want to go back to arguing with with Sally over like you know Medicare for all and why that's bad. <laughs> like, can yeah. we just get back to that? So I totally yeah. Understand. No, I know, and where we go back to fighting over problems, right. not 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 being in a perpetual crisis right or constitutional uh, facing a constitutional yeah. crisis um yeah. i've kept you longer than i said i would but i just wanted that's to okay. i, I, I appreciate your time um i wanted to talk really quick give you a chance to talk about your book you wrote a book called security moms yeah. um talk a, bit, yeah. Yeah, talk a little bit about that what inspired you to to, to write the book and also kind of like what, a... yeah like what inspired you to even get into this field because some people, they, they wonder, how do you end up being an assistant secretary for DHS? You're a national security expert. You know, by the way, we talked about the Coast Guard and 
Juliet won the highest civilian honor with the Coast Guard for her work on the BP oil spill with the Coast Guard. So I just wanted to give you a shout out on that. But just talk a little bit about that, the book, what inspired it, and how you even got into this whole field. Yeah. So it's actually, I got in it uh, not directly. I was a lawyer at the Department of Justice. I was in the Civil Rights Division. Um, but um, even then, there were some counterterrorism cases that had civil rights and civil liberties implications. So I was assigned to those cases. Um, and what I say in the book is, you know, one's career only makes sense in hindsight. So there's a whole bunch of personal things going on at this time. My husband gets a teaching job at Harvard Law School. We leave the Department of Justice. I'm here in 2000, um, uh, you know, serving on the National Commission on Terrorism, which was a, you know, which was one of these commissions that was formed because of the rise of bin Laden. But no one knew who bin Laden was. I on, you know, I'm I'm pregnant with our first kid. I'm thinking, okay, I need to think about the career switch because we're going to be here if, if he gets tenure for the rest of our lives here being Boston and Cambridge, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And then 9-11 happens. And so your career is sometimes formed by outside forces or tragedies that you didn't imagine. There were very few people in terrorism and counterterrorism. That, and so then over the course of my career, I like to say I've had one career and many jobs. So my <laughs> career has always been in safety and security, but I've been in state government. I was uh, Deval Patrick's Homeland Security Advisor, federal government, um, uh, media, um, you know, TV, radio, uh, columnist, uh, academia, private sector, consultant, all of that stuff. But they've always been around this theme. And you um, ran for uh, office too, right? And I ran for office at one stage. Yeah, it was, I don't think it was for me. I didn't really love it, but I think I would have <laughs> liked being governor. Um, but it's a different kind of person. It's more, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 anyway, it's, yeah, it's uh, not for everybody. I, I, I get it. It's <laughs> by people who can do it. So, um, uh, and do it again and again. Um, and I, um, uh, uh, but I now view myself less a counterterrorism person and more of a Homeland Security expert. And the reason why is I really look at all of the risks that the United States could face, whether it's terrorism or an oil spill or a natural disaster or, or the existential challenges we're going to have with climate change. Um, and so we, we, people in Homeland Security talk about all hazards, right? So it's, you know, from a pandemic to a cyber attack to a terrorism attack. And that's where I, I am now focused on and the challenges of securing, um, uh, the challenges of sort of securing a country like ours, where you want it to be vibrant and diverse and open, but you also have the obligation for it to be secure. So I wanted to tell that story. This gets to the book. But I, but I didn't know how to tell it. Like I knew, like, look, most people, when you talk about terrorism or homeland security, the way people like me have talked to the American public, we gave you only two options: tune out or freak out. Those were your two <laughs> options, right? You know, it was either right. oh my god, I'm afraid, or oh my god, I can't, I can't watch the news anymore. So I wanted to write a book that people could relate to and say, look, this is actually there's a there's a theory behind this. You try to minimize risks. Um, maximize defenses so that you're protected, but also maintain who we are as a country, right? You know, after the Boston Marathon, um, you know, I remember Jay Tapper asked me on the air, well, next year, will the, will the marathon be safe? I said, that's not my standard. It will be safer. The only way I can give you a safe marathon is, um, is not to have it. Right. And mm -hmm. that's not, that's not that we can't do that. Right. Cause we love what it means to be here in Boston to, to, to have this event and that, you know, every, every community nation has those. Sure. So, and also um, you have to balance civil liberties with protection, which is an ongoing debate. Right. And so 
I wanted to tell that story and then I realized it wasn't very different from what I do every day as a mother of three kids. I minimize their risks. I try to maximize the defenses, you know, seatbelts, you know, don't let them go out <laughs> late at night. But um, I, I also want them to be um, knowledgeable, open, um, accepting in a world that's really, really complicated. I cannot protect them. Uh, from the world out there. So I, and I don't want to in some ways. And so there, there's a line in the book when I sort of introduce, so I'm going to basically, so I'm going to tell the story of what our homeland security is through a memoir about what it is to raise kids and be a homeland security expert. And people would see that, that the storyline isn't that different, right? That they're right. very, very similar. Right. Well, what, um, what a and relatable so way. That's a relatable way to discuss yeah. something that can sometimes seem to be overwhelming to average folks, but um, you found a way to make it relatable. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's what I wanted to do because look, it's your homeland too. And I think in some ways this stuff going on with Trump and all these, you know, young women who ran for office for the first time, whatever. Like, I think like this ownership, like we, we own this homeland, like no one else does. The terrorists don't, the government doesn't. And I think I wanted to, I wanted it to be empowering rather than, you know, um, doom and gloom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think yeah. that's fantastic. And the idea of ownership and that we, the collective, we, um, the ownership of this country, despite the way that Trump and his minions try to divide us into believing that there's all these others who don't who don't have that same ownership. Uh, I think that's a great message and it's and it's really relevant. So I would suggest folks go out and get your book, Security Moms, to check Thank you out. You. And you can see Juliet on CNN, especially when there's uh, national security issues uh, on. She's all over the place. And um, you can follow her on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Juliet? Uh, just my name, Juliet, J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-K-A-Y-Y-E-M. And that's where you can find her. Thank you, Thank Juliet. You. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Have a great day. As always, I want to thank my guest, Juliet Kayam, again for joining me and having such a great conversation. So informative. Uh, she's she's the best. Um, I want to really thank her. She was so generous with her time. So you've heard me talk about what's going on with the border and drug interdiction and the Coast Guard. But so, you know, you've heard plenty of stories about the drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me right. Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, starting January 23rd, 10, 9 central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head. And the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. Get hooked on Pure. Series premiere Wednesday, January 23rd at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV channel 307, Dish channel 239, or check your local cable listings 
for the channel in your area. That's Pure on WGN Wednesdays starting January 23rd. Check it out. Uh, I want to end today's show by mentioning if you are a government worker who is furloughed or working without pay and you're worried about making ends meet or whether there's help out there for you, um, it's not really my feel-good story of the week, but it's more informative because I want people out there who are affected by this, there's a lot that are impacted, to know that there are at least some companies who are willing to work with you and some banks that are willing to work with you. USA Today did a story listing some of those resources. Um, I'll post this on the uh, Honestly Speaking Twitter page as well, but um, or you can just Google it, but I wanted to list a couple of who those businesses are so that you guys know. Um, as far as assistance programs, uh, Bank of America, Chase, the Congressional Federal Credit Union, FedChoice, Navy Federal Credit Union, U.S. Bank, the U.S. Employees Credit Union, Wells Fargo. They are all banks that are willing to work with their customers who are affected by the furlough. So give your bank a call if you are a customer of any one of those. Also, the option of unemployment benefits for some, that's an an option to look into, depending on how long this goes. Cell phone companies, wireless providers, you know, we all need our cell phones, and sometimes they can be expensive. Um, All the major wireless companies are willing to work with you if you are a government employee impacted by the furlough. AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon. Give them a call. Let them know what's going on. They'll work with you. Um, in the lo- in the D.C., Washington area, Washington, D.C. area, a lot of federal workers out here. Uh, there are some local um, freebies that they're offering, like the Alamo Draft House Cinema. You know, you want to go grab a movie or something, they have, they have a free ticket uh, deal going on. Uh, if you're not at work, go catch a movie at least. Uh, but uh, other other restaurateurs like Jose Andres, you may have heard that name. He was he's a big celebrity chef. He has restaurants all over the country. He also sued Trump because he was supposed to have a restaurant in Trump um, Trump's hotel in D.C. and he pulled out of that deal over a lot of things with Trump and his offensive comments toward immigrants. But Jose Andres also donated his time and resources to help victims of the Puerto Rico hurricane, hurricane, uh, hurricanes, Wilma and Irma and, um, and not just Irma. I see Wilma. Anyway, anyway, the hurt, the, the Puerto Rico, um, disaster and Jose Andres went and fed millions of meals, distributed millions of meals to help folks there who were going hungry in Puerto Rico when our own government was not up to the job. So Jose Andres also has a restaurant called Haleo in the DC area and there he's offering um, free meals there too. So just some resources for folks, you know, hoping people will come together. I know that there are a lot of folks in, in the community, small businesses that are trying to look out for their fellow citizens who are suffering at the hands of this, of this shutdown. So um, God bless everybody and I will see you next week. You can always find me and tweet, tweet me at Tara Setmayer on my personal Twitter or the at honestly underscore speaking account on Twitter or on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. See you guys next week.